This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Market rate, £3,000 a day. Were you signing Lionel Messi? This is First Minister's questions. Just once, just once, it would be nice to get a First Minister's answer. For Douglas Ross to stand there and talk about losing grip of a party when he's been leader, the Conservatives have had the longest attempted coup in Scottish political history. The Steamy, a laudable production for the Scotsman. Hello and welcome to The Steamy, the Scotsman's political podcast. My name is Conor Matchett, I'm the Deputy Political Editor at The Paper, and here with me, um, we've got a full capacity team, I think, for the first time in a while. I can't remember if the last one before recess was the same. I think it was just me and you, Alistair, wasn't it, beforehand? I think so, yeah. yeah but anyway, as, as you can hear, uh, Political Editor Alistair Grant is here, and so is our political correspondent, Rachel Amory, fresh from rain-drenched uh, Brecon earlier on in the week as well. Yes, yes, very wet, uh, um, as you can imagine, after the storm, Babbitt. Absolutely. We're going to talk a little bit about government WhatsApps, which sounds like a fun thing to talk about on a Thursday. Um, we're going to talk about it because it came up at FMQs today. Uh, Rachel, you were working for other organisations, so you watched very closely. Can you take us through what uh, came up at First Minister's questions today? Yes, this was um, Douglas Ross's question there. And as you said, on the face of it, it just sounds WhatsApp messages. Why is this important? It could turn out to be incredibly important. So this is the UK COVID inquiry, which is ongoing to look at what the government's response was during the pandemic, what could be done better, what was done well, all that kind of stuff. And we're looking at WhatsApp messages from the Scottish government. And there seems to now be this accusation that there are no WhatsApp messages left and they don't exist anymore and therefore cannot be handed over to the inquiry. Now, um, Hamza Youssef is saying not the case, you know, everything that's relevant is being handed over. He's already handed things over himself. But there is, of course, this just this in the background, like, oh, why are the inquiry saying differently? Why are the inquiry not happy with the amount of information that has been passed across? Um, and, of course, we don't, we don't tell listeners just how important the inquiry is. Everybody knows how important it is already because it's so personal to everybody. So it's going to be really interesting to see what happens there because... At FMQs today, I mean, all sorts of things are being bandied about. Accusations of secrecy. Mm-hmm. Has Humphreys potentially misled Parliament, which, as yeah. we know, is a very serious accusation. So it's going to be interesting to see how this develops and are any of those claims... Is there any truth in any of them, I suppose? That's the big question now. Absolutely. I mean, let, let's just quickly read what senior counsel to the COVID-19 inquiry, Jamie Dawson, KC, said. He said that there was no clear, comprehensive response emerged in the corporate statements from the Scottish Government. No messages were provided. That was in the context of the fact that he was asked, uh, the government was asked to provide all communications related to key decisions made during the pandemic. Rachel, you mentioned earlier on in the year, I think it was June or July, and Asawa brought up the COVID-19 inquiry and made Hamza Youssef effectively commit to releasing all messages that were asked of him to release. Alistair, this is that kind of commitment coming back to roost to a degree, isn't it? 
Yeah, I think Hamza Yusuf is actually committed to this more than once when it's been brought up. You know, once in the Scottish Parliament, mm -hmm. you're right, with Anna Sarwar, and I think another time in direct response to a question that was asked by a journalist. So he's, he's kind of committed to it himself. And I think it is, as Rachel says, something that could end up being incredibly important. And you look at the messages that have come out from the UK government and the things we're learning from that. If you think back to the COVID pandemic, decisions were being made incredibly fast by officials and ministers behind the scenes. We weren't going through the normal processes of decision-making. Understandably, I think people get that. They understand why the pandemic was different from the normal course of action. But of course, now you've got these inquiries set up, it's incredibly important that we understand why those decisions were taken, how they were taken, you know, the processes that led to them. Uh, and of course, if you think back, there was a number of those decisions that were incredibly controversial, things like moving people out of hospitals and into care homes. It's going to become a, a key issue that I think the inquiries will want to look at. So it's absolutely crucial we get the messages and all the communications that the government holds in relation to this. And I think if you listen to what Hamza Youssef was saying uh, at First Minister's questions this afternoon, I think it's particularly interesting his choice of language when he was responding to Scottish Conservative leader Douglas Ross, who was bringing this up. The way he phrased it was that the Scottish government doesn't routinely make decisions via WhatsApp. And I think the word routinely there is important. But also, we're not actually talking about necessarily decisions being made. We're talking about discussions that were ongoing relating to government policy. And we know that government ministers use WhatsApp. We know they do it in the UK government. We know they do it in the Scottish government. Connor, you've written stories about this. In the past, we've, we know Hamza Yusuf himself has used WhatsApp for, to discuss government policy. So messages, I think it's safe to say, relating to the COVID pandemic obviously exist in WhatsApp. I think that's probably stating the obvious. Absolutely, I think it's also important to remember that we know that the former First Minister uses WhatsApp because there were WhatsApp messages released during the Samuel inquiry um, from Nicola Surgeon's phone. We know that um, Hamza Youssef used it. We can only assume that senior special advisers use it because how else were as anyone could it, you know, commenting and discussing anything during the COVID pandemic? And I think it's interesting, isn't it? You, you, you made the point that this is not just about decision-making. This isn't just the COVID inquiry wanting to see for example, when the decision to lock down was, was taken. They don't want to know that. They want to know the logic behind the decision so that they can put that in the context of the time. And I think when you look at the messages we've seen already from the UK COVID inquiry and from the UK government's point, point of view, some of this stuff is really, really damaging. I mean, there was messages from Simon Case, um, you know, the, the, the cabinet secretary down south, the highest civil servant in the land going, our Prime Minister is useless. You had Dominic Cummings and others in WhatsApp messages, you know, seemingly admitting to deliberately misleading the Scottish Government. This stuff is important for us to know if we're going to get any answers about what happened during the pandemic. I mean, Rachel, do you think that we'll ever see these sorts of WhatsApps? Do we think that they still exist or have they been deleted? Not necessarily illegally, because that request, that do not destroy order came quite late. Um, but do you think that these messages exist? Do you think we'll ever see that what went on in the corridors of power up here? Well, that is the big question just now because we don't know at the moment which individuals, if any, have automatically deleted their WhatsApp messages, which, as you said, many people have that on their phone that automatically, once their storage gets a certain point, messages get deleted. And we don't know if 
ministers do have that on their phones and if they do how many do and that's I think the problem right now is has that happened perhaps not maliciously not not deliberately just a, an oversight perhaps but it's an oversight that would potentially be very damaging and have far-reaching consequences because as you said it's not just the decision that was made it's what alternatives were thought about what things were considered who was involved in the processes all of these things that we was that the inquiry wants to know about now and it's also isn't it Alistair about potentially friendly fire as as you might put it in political terms of for example Nicola Sturgeon and John Swinney complaining to a senior advisor about Jean Freeman or Hamza <laughs> Youssef or you know Angus Robertson and that sort of stuff that is relevant to decision making relevant to the Covid pandemic but is deeply embarrassing for any government to have to release. Well I mean you, you look at the I mean you're referred to Simon Case's messages we've seen lots of messages come out in the UK Covid inquiry between officials in the UK government uh, behind the scenes that were extremely candid, to put it politely, uh, very <laughs> brutally honest <laughs> about colleagues. And everyone knows, I mean, everyone I'm sure listening to this uses WhatsApp or an equivalent messaging service. They know the kind of informal way you communicate. And I think from the government's point of view, I guess having those messages, you know, potentially having those messages put out into the open could be embarrassing. But we have set up these inquiries. We've given them the power to compel evidence. Uh, I think even during the pandemic, officials and ministers must have known that one day something like this could happen. So yeah, it's just the, the nature of the game there. And I think it, it kind of ties into a wider thing that again, I know you've written about in the way that government operates these days, these informal messaging service, services, things like WhatsApp, things like Microsoft Teams, which I know is quite widely used in the Scottish government, things like Telegram, uh, are, are just a fact of modern life. Yeah. They are how officials and ministers communicate. And if we're looking at something like the COVID pandemic, which was this, you know, world changing event in which, you know, extraordinary measures were put into place by the Scottish and UK governments. If we want to actually drill down into why those decisions were made, what the fault processes, processes were behind them, then getting access to this kind of information is, is crucial. Otherwise, you're never going to get the full picture. Absolutely. Rachel, is it a muddle or is it a fiddle? between the two exactly. A muddle is incompetence, a fiddle's conspiracy to, <laughs> to keep it up and cover things over. Could be both. Could be both. Um, we'll hear more from that. We're, we're, we're currently sat here in a parliamentary committee room waiting for a statement from the government to, to be published to kind of put their side of the story across, which is why we're not really talking about what they've said beyond what the First Minister at FMQ. So that'll come later. You can read um, that statement and what came out of it uh, on the scotsman.com uh, website and in the paper as well uh, this morning. We'll move on to another big story of the week. Um, Alistair, I think you wrote about it for the paper, a big report out from the Fire Brigades Union about cuts. Um, if you've ever been worried about a fire going off, I would read that report and you might be a little bit more scared about a fire going off. Yes, yeah, so this is a, a report that was commissioned by the Fire Brigades Union talking about the, the current state of the, the Scottish Fire and Rescue Service and raising kind of serious concerns about the current state of play. So they would argue that cuts have been made over the last decade, that you know, the current state of affairs isn't good, the ability of the fire service to carry out its job is now being compromised. They're also raising serious concerns about the, the current budget settlement that is being offered to the fire service and the impact that might have in future years. And you're talking about job losses, they're talking about uh, even issues such as training, the state of equipment, the support the firefighters are given. When I came into the Scottish Parliament today, through the public entrance, there was a, a quite well attended, actually, protest of firefighters just outside. Yeah, they had a fire engine and there's, I don't know how many people were there. I heard there were tunes. There, there was tunes echoing <laughs> from that fire engine, but extremely well attended. And I think there is a real sense from 
firefighters that this has now come to a crunch point mm. and they need to get their message across. They need something to be done about this. And it ties into a kind of wider feeling. I mean, we were both at the, the SNP conference in Aberdeen. For uh, our sins, yeah. For our sins. <laughs> the Scottish Police Federation held uh, a kind of fringe event at that conference and we're quite explicit about the impact of cuts on the police service and the kind of impact that's having and the ability of the police to carry out their job and raising concerns about that kind of pilot project that's going on in the northeast of Scotland in which it's basically been decided that the police will no longer investigate certain minor crimes in which they don't think they can really make any progress. So you could be phoning up the police about you know, something that's been stolen from your garden or whatever that minor crime is and the expectation now is that the police will not really look into that at all. So that's obviously a huge source of concern and just the kind of crunch that's happening with public services in Scotland and with our emergency services and the background to this is obviously the budget which is coming in later on this year in December and the spending decisions the Scottish Government will have to make. We've already had, I know it's a separate issue but it is tied into this, the kind of surprise announcement at SNP conference that there was going to be a freeze in council tax next year took councils completely by surprise. I think it's a policy that might be you know, largely welcomed by voters. It's probably a kind of popular move from the SNP, but it does leave councils worried about how they're going to fund services, where they're going to have to make cuts in the future. So I think there's going to be some hard decisions for the Scottish Government and a huge backlash from services like, like the fire service, the police, if uh, funding decisions are not favourable to them. And I was going to, it's good that you brought up council tax because Rachel, I was going to ask you about that. You know, this is this is the first time we, as the team, we've been able to discuss what came out of SNP conference. That council tax freeze has caused a significant rally, as Alistair says, um, with local authorities. It could cost anywhere between 150 million to a billion pounds, according to some very, very optimistic local government people who are wrong, or at least who are dreaming. I mean, this is it's, it's an interesting situation we're in, in in Scotland, and Wales is going through the same thing with their default government as well. They've just gone through a big emergency budget review process similar to the type undertaken by John Swinney last year, which is that there's fundamentally not much more you can get from the tax base. You know, any tax reform in, in Scotland that based, bases itself on income tax or council tax twiddles isn't going to bridge the gap. So you're looking at service cuts or you're looking at reducing benefits to, to, from universal to means tested. And we're at a point, aren't we, in, in Scotland where political parties need to get serious about how we fund public services and stop electioneering. I think that's a, one way that really demonstrates that is how much industrial action we have seen from just about every corner of the public sector, whether it's been teachers, folk who do the bins, it doesn't matter what area it is, it seems to be everyone is not happy with their pay. And it does also then mean is if everyone's asking for more pay from a very small pot, how do you prioritise that? Who gets money over somebody else? What, how do you say that service is more important than the other service? So that, I think, is probably most demonstrates sort of the public anger and the public worry there when it comes to council tax. Like you said, the council tax freeze, debating how impactful it will be. I think you said earlier, Connor, that for many people, all they're hearing is council tax freeze, which sounds good. Others saying that, well, you know, it's minimal amounts that people will actually save from this, but perhaps big benefits to councils there. And um, if you see this week, even just things with the cleanup effort from Storm Babbitt, for example, councils will have to pay a lot of money for that. And yes, there have been certain funds that have been opened up to help with that. But councils 
are already having to put in claims to the government for the damage there. I think Aberdeenshire, Angus and Perth and Kinross, Ross, where the city council so far have done that. And they'll probably be thinking, well, if we could get some more money in from council tax, we probably wouldn't have to rely on government funds for emergencies like this as much. So that's something that's going to be, it's going to be interesting to see what happens on the back of all of this. Because I think while it does sound good on the face of it, I think the reality is it'll save people very little money and perhaps lead to more cuts in public services. I think it's also worth saying as well that while there has been a narrative that's kind of developed in the back of this announcement at the SNP conference that basically the public will welcome it. And I know, you know, we've all spoken to SNP figures who their position is essentially that, you know, stories about this in the press are doing them no harm whatsoever because all people will read is council tax freeze and people will be, you know, largely welcoming of that, not having to pay potentially more money next year. I think that is true, but I also think it's true that if councils come to a crunch point and you have to start closing services, I mean, we've seen the rows that have developed of libraries closing, swimming pools closing, and those decisions will have, to be, will have to be made. There will become a crunch point. And if people then start to make the connection between decisions that the government has made, I think it could be a problem for the Scottish government for Hamza Youssef. I think particularly because during the SNP leadership election and since then, he's had this narrative about you know, a progressive approach to taxation, a progressive approach to politics. And he seems to be kind of rowing back in that a little bit in the sense of he still, talk, he still says those things, he, tell, he still talks that game, but arguably council tax freeze is not a progressive move in terms of how it affects people in uh, larger houses, the money it raises. I would look out for those decisions around income tax in the Scottish budget and what he decides to do around that. There's been a lot of noise about progressive taxation, potentially raising income tax for higher earners. I think if they, if they change their minds about that, the money is going to have to come from somewhere. Yeah. Uh, it could be a problem for them. I think with taxation as well, I think people do connect it quite a lot to public services, especially at the moment when you said things are so tight and things are closing. I know like just sort of hypothetically myself, I wouldn't mind paying more tax if it meant that there was great public services, but I just feel at the moment there is such a squeeze on everything and things are in such a bad way for a lot of areas in the public sector. I don't feel that if I was to pay more tax that I would see an immediate benefit in public services. I think people do do connect those two things quite clearly in their mind, yeah. It's interesting. I mean, there was a report out from public, sorry, from Audit Scotland today, which is very technical. I won't go into the, the details, but had some interesting tidbits. You know, we're talking about income tax here. We, we revealed in The Scotsman on Friday that the government's moving away from any potential hikes on those earning about under £50,000. Now, that is pretty much your public sector workers who are your standard, your nurses, your policemen, your, your, your council workers. And it's worth, Audit Scotland report put out today something that re- I thought was really striking, which was, you know, the public pay policy in, for Scottish government ahead of 2022-23, before the invasion in Ukraine and before the mini-budget, was a 2% pay increase across the board of the public sector. NHS workers in 2022-23 got 7.5, junior doctors 4.5, rail workers 5%, police Scotland officers 5%. And that's been compounded again with above expected pay rises. You know, it was meant to be a maximum of 5% this year, this budgetary year. NHS workers got 6.5, junior doctors 12.4, rail workers another 5% and police Scotland officers 7%. And as this budget is going to be an intense balancing act 
for Shona Robeson, the finance secretary, and is going to fundamentally depend on how much spending the UK government thinks it can get away with ahead of an election. Yeah, it's going to be an incredibly tough budget for them. And I think, as I say, there'll be certain decisions to look out for. I think in the aftermath of the Rutherglen and Hamilton West by-election, that 20% swing from the SNP to Labour, I think it's safe to say that the SNP are extremely concerned about that. And they're concerned about the upcoming general election expected next year. They're concerned about losing seats, they're concerned about the polls which show them losing support and there seems to be certainly this change in positioning to appeal more to I suppose what you might colloquially call middle Scotland, like you say those people who are middle class earners but there seems to be a shift in focus towards them, I think as some newspapers call them, which I find really irritating, suburban strivers. We put that in our own copy by the way. <laughs> it's an extremely annoying phrase but I suppose it does capture it. Yeah. There seems to be a shift towards appealing to them and I think if you're going to make those kind of decisions in the budget, I mean, we've already got talk of like a billion pound black hole that they're facing. They're extremely tough decisions and I think it'll be interesting to see where they choose to focus. And on the mention of the UK government, um, let's go down to listen to Alex Brown with the latest from Westminster. Hello and welcome back to the Westminster section of the podcast. My name is Alexander Brown and it has been a quieter week in Westminster, or so it seemed, until the announcement late on Thursday that Crispin Blunt, the Tory MP, had been arrested on suspicion of rape and possession of a substance that he's not allowed to have. He has denied these charges on Twitter and said that he won't be discussing anything else. But the key issue here is that Tory whips knew this had happened and he was they were still happy with him to have the whip. And I think it really, and obviously we won't talk about the rights and wrongs because these are legal matters. But what is interesting is a vote was supposed to be held, I think almost half a year ago now, on whether MPs accused of sexual assault should be allowed onto the parliamentary estate. And the vote was pulled. And now there is no time slot for it to happen again. And it looks like, you know, any MP who's been accused of something which is very, very serious is still able to go onto parliamentary estate, do their work, conduct their business. So, I mean, there, there could be a commons ban for him. I think that's probably likely going to happen. He might be asked to stay away. But, but it's quite telling that these sorts of things aren't immediate. Uh, beyond that, the Prime Minister held a, a huge speech uh, uh, on AI where he said in one breath that people shouldn't worry about it, they shouldn't lose sleep over the risk of AI, and also warned that you know it could essentially destroy civilization and a superintelligence could completely take over and destroy the world that we know. I think it's quite interesting that the AI conversation from the Prime Minister is clearly an attempt to kind of get ahead of it. He wants the UK to be a world leader. He talked about how it's not about replacing people's jobs, it's more about how it can add to people's jobs. So rather than you being replaced by someone who does the admin, the admin will be done for you by the AI, freeing you up to do other things. So there's now going to be a summit uh, held in the UK. China uh, has been invited, which is quite controversial with many Tory MPs, given China, we know, has been trying to spy on the British state uh, and is you know committing a genocide to some of its own citizens. But there we are. Uh, and the Prime Minister said, look, you know, I've got to invite one of the bigger countries. Uh, it's very important they're there. And I suppose as one of the bigger nations and, and those at the forefront of technology and its misuse, uh, it probably does make sense to have China um, present and involved. Whereas in Labour land, 
Keir Starmer at PMQs completely failed to mention the Israel-Palestine conflict and um, what's happening in Gaza. And this is down to this kind of ongoing battle within his own party after he said that Israel absolutely has the right to deny water and power uh, from Gaza. He said that during an LBC interview in a series of interviews, and it's kind of caused huge headaches in the party. Uh, MPs have made their displeasure known privately. Muslim groups are furious and accused him of, after a photo shoot and a visit, using them for political means, which... I mean, not to be disrespectful, but what do they think an MP going to visit for a photo for, you know, for, and taking photos is? And generally, councillors are also resigning. So it's not great. He's had to row back and said he was answering lots of questions at the same time. But I think it's quite interesting that we're in this position where the Labour leader is unable to talk about one of the biggest issues in the world at the moment, when actually his position isn't that different to the government. It's you know having not having a ceasefire, but having temporary pauses to allow humanitarian aid in because Israel won't have a ceasefire. They say you can't have a ceasefire with Hamas, so he's not going to ask something that he can't get. That doesn't mean the SNP aren't going to politicise it, and now everyone in the party is saying, why aren't they calling for a ceasefire? Why aren't they calling for a ceasefire? And the answer to that probably is, he's leader of the Labour Party. Is that going to make a difference? Or is it going to kind of burn political capital? But yeah, so that's terrible things that have happened this week always more happening uh, and we've got the prorogation of parliament so MPs are now off on their jollies again not having to work in parliament for a couple of weeks again until the king's speech so stay tuned to the scotsman and thank you so much for listening so thank you very much for that alex i won't be here next week because i'm off to aaron to have a nice little autumn holiday so you'll be left in the hands of uh, the two people sat to the left of me for uh, whatever comes out of hollywood next week thank you very much and both of you and thank you very much at home for listening bye bye